Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. And last week I told you about the infamous case of Kathy Willits being the nympho married to the cop who basically dethroned a politician because she took Prozac and said that she couldn't stop having sex with people. And her attorney was the notorious defense attorney, Ellis Rubin. Now, Ellis Rubin was, he went to the University of Miami Law School. He's a cane. Uh, but he was born in Syracuse, New York, raised in uh, New York, served as an officer in the Navy, World War II, graduated from Holy Cross College. He received a law degree in 1951 from the University of Miami Law School, which is a very prestigious law school, by the way. He was admitted to the bar to practice law in Florida before the United States Supreme Court. And he was the namesake of his law firm, Rubin and Rubin, which started in 1951 and still is open today. And one of his cases, he supported Anita Bryant's anti-gay rights crusade in the 1970s. But later, he became a strong advocate for gay rights. And he decided that he was wrong about Anita Bryant. And he tried to fix things by filing six lawsuits in 2004 challenging Florida's ban on gay marriage. But his criminal defense cases were where he cut his teeth. Now, one of them I told you about last week was Ronnie Zamora. He came up, Ruben came up with these weird defenses. And in this case, when Ruben defended the 15-year-old Ronnie Zamora in 1977 for murder of his 83-year-old neighbor in her Miami Beach home, it was during a robbery. The trial was one of the first ever nationally televised. And Zamora's defense, per Ellis Rubin, was that he was intoxicated by violence on TV. The defense became known as the TV intoxication defense, and Zamora claimed that he couldn't tell the difference between fantasy and reality because of his obsession with Kojak. <laughs> tell Lisa Wallace, remember you used to look at the lollipop all the time? And other violent shows since the age of five. He was watching TV. Of course, the TV made me do it. It's almost like the affluenza defense the kid that killed all those people in a DUI and got off. But Ruben tried unsuccessfully to provide evidence of the damaging effect of TV on young minds by issuing subpoenas to the actor Telly Savalas, the star of Kojak, and to nationally known experts on the relationship between violence and television. So he wasn't able to connect those dots. So after Zamora was convicted and sentenced to life... He unsuccessfully appealed his sentence, blaming Rubin for the TV intoxication offense, which he claimed had made a joke of the trial. Federal appeals court ruled that the evidence against Zamora was so overwhelming and that Rubin had made the best of a weak case that his wacky defense had in fact helped Zamora by focusing attention on Zamora's deprived background. So eventually in 2004, Zamora was released from prison. He served 27 years and he was from Costa Rica. So he repatriated back to that country. Good riddance. Another really interesting case that Ellis Rubin was a part of was the Lionel Tate case. Now, in this one, he was the actually hired as the fourth attorney for Lionel Tate. Lionel Tate was a kid who was on probation for the murder of a six-year-old kid named Tiffany Eunuch in 1999. He was 12 at the time and he was... They're out on a balcony, and he used this wrestling move on her and slammed her onto the cement pavement, killed her. 
So Ruben had betrayed the scenario of Tate as a fan of professional wrestling, and he said he was only imitating the sport's body slams when he accidentally killed Tiffany Eunuch. Tate was convicted of first-degree murder and received a life sentence in 2001, but his conviction received worldwide attention as the youngest American ever sentenced to life in prison. Then his conviction was overturned on appeal, and Ellis Rubin entered a plea agreement that freed Tate in January of 2004. But Tate... He couldn't help himself. He got in trouble again. In 2005, Ruben had to defend him again on charges of robbery of a pizza delivery guy. And Ruben threatened to resign from the case after Tate, without informing Ruben, wrote a letter to the judge trying to retract a plea bargain, a bargain that would have removed the possibility of two life sentences. So simultaneously, Tate claimed his mother physically abused him and that he was now suffering flashbacks and post-traumatic stress disorder. Case was really likened to a soap opera totally had ups and downs. So then in 2007, Ellis Rubin had died. He was 81, but Tate filed a motion to have his 30-year sentence vacated on the grounds that his former attorney, now deceased Ellis Rubin, was incompetent. The posthumous appeal failed, so he's still serving the 10-year sentence in state prison for the robbery, which is running concurrently with his 30-year sentence for violating his probation. He's currently imprisoned in the Charlotte Correctional Institution. But one of Ellis Rubin's most important cases was the exoneration of James Richardson. He was actually fired from this case, but It was a big case because the man who was released in 1989 was wrongfully convicted of fatally poisoning his seven children. Here's what James Richardson told the Palm Beach Post after his release. I never give up hope. My faith was so strong in God until I could both imagine to see this happening. I did not have an animosity against no one, but uh, I just were hurt. He actually got $1.2 million for the 21 years he spent in prison under legislation signed into law by Governor Rick Scott. Money is no good. Life is better than money. So the bill unanimously passed by the state legislature in 2014 compensated James Richardson for the time he served, including four years on death row. When I first took death row, I felt so down, down and out. It's hurt when you have to suffer for something you didn't do. He was 78 and living in Kansas when he got the money. He was sentenced in 1968 after his conviction for the deaths of his children in Arcadia. That's in central Florida. It's kind of it's kind of like a farming hick town. Sorry, Arcadia. Former babysitter. She lived next door. She was an older woman. Later admitted that she had laced the children's food with an insecticide called parathion. And Richardson had been sentenced to death, but that punishment was commuted to life in prison when the U.S. Supreme Court threw out capital punishment nationwide in 1972. It then came back, of course, here in Florida. So October 25th, 1967, the seven children, the seven Richardson children, ranging in age from two to eight, consumed food poisoned with this parathion. And six of the children died that day. So that was eight-year-old Betty Seven-year-old Alice, six-year-old Susie, five-year-old Doreen, four-year-old Vanessa, and two-year-old James. The seventh child, Diane, she was three. She died the next day. Betty and Alice were from Annie Richardson's previous marriage, while James was the father of the five youngest. So the night before, Annie Mae Richardson, James' wife, had prepared lunch of beans and rice and grits for the children, and the meal was placed in a locked refrigerator overnight. And in the morning, the Richardsons left to go to work in the orange groves. As I said, it's kind of like a farming community. It was 16 miles away from their home. And the neighbor, Bessie Reese, 
the babysitter was delegated to take care of the kids while their parents were at work. And the four oldest were enrolled in school, but they went home to eat lunch, the laced lunch. After they returned to school that afternoon, their teachers noticed they were showing some really strange symptoms. The principal immediately took them to the hospital. One of the teachers went to check on the three other children at home and found that they were sick as well. They were taken to the hospital. Both of the parents left the Orange Groves to go to the hospital. They were unaware that six of their children were already dead at the time. Now, Janet Reno, who was then Miami-Dade County State Attorney and later rose to U.S. Attorney General, you might recall her decision in the Ilian Gonzalez case that happened in Miami, She concluded that Richardson was wrongly convicted and that the state had relied on perjury and failed to investigate evidence implicating the babysitter. So retired circuit judge Clifton Kelly ordered James Richardson, who was 53 years old at the time, to be immediately released into the custody of defense attorney Ellis Rubin of Miami, following the extraordinary appeal in which both Rubin and special prosecutor Janet Reno argued that Richardson had been railroaded. Apparently, Rubin received a letter from his co-counsel, Washington attorney Mark Lane, that told him not to make any public comments about the Richardson case after the special prosecutor, Janet Reno, decided that the 53-year-old former fruit picker should face retrial. Reno said she found evidence of substantial trial errors in Richardson's 1968 trial in Arcadia, but then she indicated that she was just going to close the case. So that was one of the cases that Ellis Rubin had a hand in. In his prime, Ellis Rubin was considered the bad boy of the bar. He said, quote, if people are getting their attorneys by looking at television, that's no way to pick an attorney. However, he was the original television attorney. He used the evening news as people's court. He also announced that Florida was about to be overrun by communists in 1955, that television violence was turning brains of American children into the consistency of melted jello pudding pops. That was in 1978. And that burglaries would all but disappear if homeowners were given the right to use whatever force they wished against intruders. That was in 1986. He successfully defended Lisa Keller, a Broward County woman accused of beating her stepfather to death after years of physical and sexual abuse. And Reuben was jailed himself. He spent 30 days in the Dade Slammer, got pneumonia. He refused to defend an accused murderer who wanted to lie on the witness stand. He did not want to suborn perjury. So Reuben was jailed for contempt, claiming the integrity of the system was at stake. But going to jail gave Ellis Rubin an aura of respectability because truthfulness of what goes on in the courtroom is the issue for which Rubin surrendered his freedom and something that taps deeply into the suspicions of many Americans. A trial by a jury is supposed to be a search for the truth, Rubin said. Actually, trial by jury has become a great lying contest. Case in point, the double murder trial of O.J. Simpson. Now, I wanted to end with a kind of funky story. There's two funky stories that, of course, like they're the weirdest stories that ever have been in Florida. For now. Blockhead versus Lobster Boy. So this is how Lobster Boy Grady Styles went from circus act to murderer. Now, there's a peculiar physical condition known as electrodactyly or Lobster claws for hands, basically, and it afflicted the Stiles family. It's a rare congenital deformity. Makes your hands look like lobster claws. Your middle fingers are missing, or they're, like, fused together to the thumb and the pinky. It's like a forever uh, Vulcan V. (laughs) 
live long and prosper. While many have viewed this condition as a handicap for the Stiles family, they used it as an opportunity. Uh, they, As far back as the 1800s, the family grew and produced more children with these unusual hands and feet, and they developed a circus act, the Lobster Family, which became a carnival staple throughout the early 20th century. But one son, Grady Stiles Jr., will give the Stiles family a different, more morbid reputation when he became a serial abuser and uh, murderer. He actually strangled with his claw hands. He became known as the Lobster Boy. He was born in Pittsburgh in 1937, and at this point, his father, he was already on the freak show circuit. So he was adding his kids with electrodactyly to his act. And Grady Stiles' case was pretty severe. I mean, in addition to his hands, he also had his feet. He couldn't even walk with his uh, claw-like feet. So for most of his life, he primarily used a wheelchair to get around. Wow. He also learned to use his upper body to pull himself across the floor with impressive strength. And he grew up and he became alarmingly strong, something that would actually benefit his homicidal rage. Throughout his childhood, Stiles and his family toured with a carnival circuit, spending the off-season in Gibsonton, Florida, like many other carnies that are missing teeth and have lobster claw hands. The family did well. They made anywhere from fifty dollars to $80,000 a season. That's actually a lot of money, unlike other freak show acts. It always gets me that we trust these roustabouts with tightening the wing nuts on the tilt-a-whirl. <laughs> so Styles grew up as a carnival barker, and so it wasn't surprising that when he fell in love, he fell in love with another carnival worker, a young woman named Maria. Now, Maria Teresa, or Mary Teresa, had run away to join the circus as a teenager, like you do, and she wasn't part of an act, but she was a staff member, and she fell in love with Styles, and the two married. I think he had, like, special abilities with his claw hands. Well, together they had two children, and like his father before him, introduced the children with electrodactyly to the family business. Now, because it's passed down, the children grew up, particularly Styles' daughter, Kathy, who did not have electrodactyly. She had normal hands and therefore was somewhat the apple of her father's eye because she was like the Marilyn of the Munster family. And then the Styles legacy began to take a dark turn because Styles drank and combined with his overpowering upper body strength, he became abusive toward his wife and children. And at one point, he allegedly used his claw-like hand to rip his wife's IUD right out from inside her body during a fight. And then he would use his claw-like hands to choke her. It was almost as if they were designed for that purpose. Now, the worst was yet to come, however, when Grady Styles' teenage daughter Donna fell in love with a young man that he did not approve of because he probably had a job working for the circus. He demonstrated his fatal strength. Now, it's not clear exactly what happened. Either Styles went to see his daughter's fiancé at his home or invited the young man over under the guise of giving his blessing for their wedding plan for the next day. But on the eve of the wedding, Styles picked up his shotgun and murdered his daughter's fiancé in cold blood, something for which he only received probation, by the way. So it went to trial. He admitted to his act, no remorse whatsoever, but he pointed out that he couldn't possibly be in prison. No jail could handle his disability, and confining him to prison would be cruel and unusual punishment because by this time, because of his drinking, he had cirrhosis of the liver, and he had emphysema from years of cigarette smoking. Thinking about it, it's probably pretty easy for him to hold the cigarette with his claw hands. He just clamps down on it. 
The court realized they really had no counter argument. And it was true that prisons were not well equipped to deal with many disabilities, certainly not his uh, incredibly rare disability. So they let him off with 15 years probation and he returned home. Now, Lobster Boy had by this time divorced his first wife, Mary Teresa, remarried another woman, had two more children, and then he subjected them to his drunken rampages, and eventually his second wife divorced him. Now, for some freaky, weird, unknown reason, his first wife agreed to remarry him in 1989. This is Lobster Boy. I was born with the flippers or the pillars of a lobster. That used to be his always remark, you know, he'd make a remark to the people or something. I'd say, Paul, why don't you act right and act like a human being? I ain't part of the human race. I don't want to act like a human being. I know you're the human race. <laughs> human race is down to hell in the wheelbarrow. Well, not all of it. <laughs> not all of it. 99% of it, friend, and that's a pretty bad odds. But Maria Teresa, or Mary Teresa, and her now grown children were not without their limits. Now, Grady Stiles had evaded prison, and he had a sense of being above the law. So he just kept beating his family. And finally, his wife, the first wife that he married the second time, (laughs) reached a breaking point. And a few years after she remarried him, she paid her 17-year-old neighbor, Chris Wyant, 1,500 bucks to kill him. And her son from another marriage, Glenn, helped her conceive the idea and carry out the plan. And one night, Wyant took a 32 caliber Colt automatic that he had a friend purchase for him and went into Stiles' trailer and shot him dead at point-blank range. Bang. But not one of those people denied that they wanted to kill Grady Stiles. In fact, during the trial, his wife spoke about the length of his abuse history. She said, my husband was going to kill my family. And she said, I believe that from the bottom of my heart, at least one of her children, Kathy, testified against him as well. Well, the jury convicted Wyan of second-degree murder, sentenced him to 27 years in prison, and they charged his wife with first-degree murder, and she received a sentence of 12 years in prison. She unsuccessfully appealed her conviction and began to serve her sentence in February of 1997, and again, she tried to get Glenn to take a plea bargain, but he refused, and the court sentenced him to life in prison. So, woof. I mean, Mary tried using the battered woman defense that actually Ellis Rubin was able to use successfully. But this stymied the jury for 11 hours, and ultimately they acquitted her of murder but convicted her of manslaughter, which made no sense except as a compromise verdict. Now, Glenn, by the way, was known as a human blockhead. Glenn was the son of Mary Teresa, who conspired to kill Lobster Boy. The jury convicted the human blockhead in the contract slaying of his stepfather, the claw-handed, stub-legged lobster boy. Jurors had rejected Harry Glenn Newman's claims that the plot was the only way to protect his mother from his stepfather's violence. Deliberating just over an hour, they returned a verdict against him. Blockhead was 20 at the time. How did he get the name Blockhead? Because during his sideshow, he would drive nails into his nostrils. What a blockhead. I guess one of them went in a little too deep. He sobbed when he was uh, pronounced guilty of first-degree murder, which brings the automatic life sentence without a chance of parole for 25 years. He also was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. The jury soundly rejected the proposition that you can claim self-defense in a murder-for-hire situation, which, you know, that makes sense. Now, finally, I want to leave you with the most bizarre death story in Florida, the roach eater story in Thanksgiving of 2012, a business in Deerfield Beach, just north uh, in northern Broward County called the Ben Siegel Reptile Store announced it was going to hold a contest. 
And the grand prize was an ivory ball python. And the contest would be to see who could eat the most cockroaches in a given period of time. So they were captive bred bugs and they were bred in sterile conditions. So they weren't like captured from someone's kitchen when you turn the light out. (laughs) Because you know when you turn the light on, they all run. So they were bred for exotic pet food and they were completely safe to eat. So one contestant in particular seemed like the life of the party. And that was Edward Archbold, and he was 32 from West Palm Beach, and he gobbled up dozens of roaches and worms and won the contest. Shortly after, he threw up, collapsed, and died. Uh, No one could figure out what went wrong. They didn't know, had he choked on these insects? Was he poisoned? What happened? I mean, there were no other illnesses reported, and the 30 other competitors, there were 30 other people that agreed to Frickin' eat these bugs. But the answer arrived with the autopsy results. Archibald had choked to death on insect parts. The Broward County Medical Examiner, it had to be Dr. Perper again with the lump on his head, ruled the death was an accident caused by asphyxia. Yes, he choked on arthropod body parts. <laughs> Yes. His headstone said, here lies Archibald. He is a lug who choked on a bug. Ugh. God, the grand prize for the contest was the python, and Archibald said that he planned to sell the snake to his friend, according to the owner of the reptile store. And the owner said, boy, we feel really bad about this. He said he looked like he just wanted to show off and was very nice. He said that Archibald did not appear to be ill, before the competition, and a lawyer for the owner of the reptile store said all contestants had signed disclaimers accepting responsibility for their participation in this unique and unorthodox contest. So there you have it. That'll teach you. And I want to end with a cold case that was just solved thanks to DNA evidence collected from the scene, the stepfather of a 16-year-old girl who was found murdered in Northwest Miami-Dade home 16 years ago has been charged in connection with her killing. Police say the 46-year-old Raul Mata was nabbed at his California home and charged with first-degree murder in the stabbing death of Delicia Mejia. Her cousin, Trinidad Gonzalez, says the family finally has closure. It's just the biggest relief that our family has had. It's like a huge burden lifted from our shoulders. Miami-Dade Assistant Police Chief Armando Aguilar says DNA evidence found at the scene led to the arrest. It's very unfortunate that she... This young lady was in the same household with a person that she trusted who was the one that ultimately took her life. Here's her cousin again, Trinidad. I'm left speechless and I'm glad that Raul Mata could face the consequences of his gruesome actions that he did 16 years ago. I always love it when DNA can solve a cold case or exonerate an innocent person. That wraps up Gold Rigger for this week. Thanks for listening. Until next week. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. 
New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.